Amen. That's where we need to be, isn't it? Placing all of our trust in Him. Well, dear congregation, this morning we are continuing in our series in the book of songs, the the book of songs, the Song of Songs, in the Song of Solomon. Uh, Preaching from the Song of Solomon has been a great delight to me. It's been very, very beneficial. Many ministers have, have testified of this sentiment of finding this book to be so profitable when they, when they began to dig into it. It's sometimes referred to as the Holy of Holies in the Bible. It's the place where the most intimate relationship with Christ is depicted to us that we, we have as His church. In the first verse, the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that this book is the song of songs, the song of all songs, like the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Holy of Holies, those kind of phrases. This is the song above all songs. It is superior to all songs in the Bible, even, as well as certainly to all other songs. Here we have revealed to us the love of Christ for His church and the love of His church for Him presented to us in an allegorical way. This is the reason that throughout the entire song, the name of the Lord is never mentioned. When you have an allegory, the one that the allegory is about is represented by other persons or things in the allegory. Okay, In this case, it's the, the bridegroom or the, the husband or whatever. Uh, so when Jesus, to use an example of what I'm talking about, when Jesus tells the parable of the wicked vine dressers, the owner of the vineyard clearly represents God the Father. The servants that he sends represent the prophets. And the son that he sends obviously represents Jesus Christ coming into the world. And uh, the vine dressers represent the apostate leaders of the church. And uh, it would spoil the allegory, if the owner of the vineyard were to run into problems and then to pray to God, because he represents God in the allegory. So it would be a a kind of a peculiar, odd thing to introduce. And then you'd have the one who represents God praying to God. God is seen throughout the parable, not as someone who is up there that is addressed, but as the owner of the vineyard who is acting in the way that God acts in sending one prophet after another and then sending his son. So it is in the Song of Solomon. Our Lord Jesus is throughout the song, the person of the bridegroom, who is called the beloved, the king, the shepherd, Solomon, and often simply referred to as by by pronouns, you know, like he, him, that sort of thing. We have noted that the whole book reads also like an allegory, instead of a historical narrative, and that the one who is the shepherd looking after the sheep is the same one who is also the king who lives in a fine palace and has all sorts of fine things around him. And his bride is seen, you know, in the one, one account where she's, she's running through the city looking for him in the middle of the night and gets beat up by the watchman when she comes and says, have you seen him? It's, not, it's, the, it's the talk of an allegory. It's not the talk of a historical narrative. It's the stuff of allegory. Now, some of you have been struggling with the allegory that's used in the Song of Solomon. And I get that. 
it can seem weird to have a relationship, the relationship that the church has with Christ represented by the relationship of a man and a woman in marriage, especially when it includes the sexual aspect of that relationship. But you need to work through that struggle. And I'll tell you why. Because the Song of Solomon is not at all the only place that our relationship with the Lord is described this way. You can say, well, I want to interpret the Song of Solomon in a different way because I don't like that. Well, you have to also interpret a lot of the Old Testament in a different way and a lot of the New Testament where this very relationship is used to depict our relationship with God. The Holy Spirit is the one who has chosen to do this. For example, the book of Hosea very clearly shows Israel as a wife who had a relationship with her husband, the Lord, and then rebelled against him and ended up going, being a harlot and going after other lovers. You have that laid out in the prophets like Ezekiel 16. You have Isaiah talking about that. God saying he divorced his wife because of her unfaithfulness. And then now he takes her back. You know that he's going to take her back. This is something that's, that's all through the Bible. And so we don't have the luxury of saying, well, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like that. I want to change it to be something else. We, we need to realize that this is how God in his wisdom has seen best to illustrate the intensity of the love between Christ and his people. Of course, this does not mean, and I don't know why anyone would ever think that it meant this, that Jesus is like some perverted cult leader that has a sexual relationship with the people that follow him. Of course it doesn't mean that. It means rather that important aspects of our relationship with him can be best illustrated by the sexual relationship, by marriage, including the sexual part of that. Just as there are aspects of that relationship between us and Christ that can best be illustrated by eating a feast or even eating his flesh and blood. We, the early Christians there said, oh, they're, look, they're cannibals. They eat the flesh. No, no, they weren't cannibals. This is a, it, was repre- it was allegorical. It was representing. The bread and wine represent his body and blood. It's not to be taken as actual, his actual body and blood. You know, even, or, or it's illustrated by us running a race. It doesn't mean that in order to be faithful to Christ, you have to go out and start running and be able to run a long and hard way. It's illustrated that way. It's an allegory. So we don't take what is allegorical and make it literally our relationship with the Lord. We learn from the allegory to be informed about the richness of our relationship with God. And it takes a whole lot of things to to show us what Christ is like. We're even, uh, our relationship to him is even presented in Scripture as a burnt offering, a sweet savor that is offered up to him. Does that mean we're to go out to an altar and, and have ourselves put on the altar and burned to God? Of course it doesn't. It's illustrating the, the giving up of our life to God. We've got to deal with this because the Scripture is full of allegory. And you can't really understand Scripture if you don't understand this. Is very important for us. And allegories are powerful. That's why they're used to communicate things. You want to know what Christ is like? He's the bread of life. He's the true vine. He's the good shepherd. All of these things. Don't let 
these allegories cause you to stumble because they come from God. They're His way of communicating. Don't close your mind to them. Seek to understand them because they're part of God's holy word. And just because something is hard for us doesn't mean that it's not good for us. Well, last week we began looking at chapter 2. We covered the first three verses, and today we're going to cover the next four. I want to read the ones we did last week as well, because what we did last week is very much connected with what we're looking at this week. So I will begin then in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, and verse 1. This is the holy word of God, so give careful and diligent attention to it. Song of Solomon 2.1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So you see then, just to review that just for a moment, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. He is preeminent beauty is what that song It doesn't mean that Jesus has petals and uh, the color of a flower or something. It means that what is characteristic of these flowers? They're beautiful. He's beautiful like a flower, but he is the preeminent, more beautiful than the lily or the rose. Like a lily among thorns, so is my beloved, or so is my love, my love, he, is the one he loves, his, his bride, who, us, the church, among the daughters. He's transformed us. He's set us apart from the other daughters, from the daughters of the world. All the people, that sons and daughters would be included in that. The nations, they're sometimes called daughters. And uh, he, he's, he set us apart so that they're like thorns because they haven't been regenerated. They haven't been transformed by the renewing of his grace and by his cleansing of his uh, blood from their sins. So we, we stand out as like him. He is the lily of the valley. We're like a lily among thorns in this world. And then we turn and say to him as the bride, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. We're very happy to be, with, to, we, we've, we've chosen him above all others. We, we've come to see that he's the only one that has fruit. All the others are trees without fruit. So we come to him. Okay, continuing on with the reading, verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the do- by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases And there we'll end the reading of God's holy word. Now you might say that last week when we stopped with verse 3, that we left the bride in a very happy place. Where was she? She was under the shadow of her husband who is the Almighty One. Under His protection, under His covering, with atonement for her sins, with protection from her enemies, promises that He had made, dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty, she, she said she was delighted to be there. And we left her also feeding on the fruits. He's the apple tree, the fruits of life that, that come from him. Delighting and feeding upon him 
as the apple tree. She says that the fruit was sweet to her taste. So we left her there, satisfied, happy, and content. But then verse 4 and 7 break in that we're looking at today and show you what happens to her after that. When she's there happily having chosen the Lord over all others. It's a very wonderful thing. This is what the bride of Christ experiences to, as, as a whole, like the bride as a whole, like the whole church, right? Different members experience at different times, different ways, different situations. But all together, this is what she experiences um, as a whole. So when we abide in Christ, this is the first thing I want you to see here. He brings us, what this shows us is that he brings us into more and more of the fullness of his blessing as our husband. Look at how this is brought out in the song. Okay, let's go back again. He brings us from under the apple tree to what? The banqueting house. In verse 3, she's sitting under the, the shade of the tree with great delight. Fruit is sweet to her taste. We're abiding in Christ. We abide in Christ if we're truly born again. As soon as we believe, we come to Him and we abide in Him. This is what is true of us if we're part of the true church. We've turned from idols to serve the living God. You remember when Paul said when the gospel first came to the Thessalonians? That's what they did. They turned from idols to serve the living God. So instead of looking to the other trees in the woods, we have become as a chaste virgin, something else Paul says, who is betrothed to Christ. We follow Him as our Lord and Master. We trust in Him as our protector and our provider. Instead of trying to find our life from riches, honors, and pleasures, or from people, other people, governments, relationships, our careers in this world, we have come to Him to obtain life everlasting with God from Him. Life reconciled to God. We want to be His bride forever and ever. What delightful protection and fruit we find in Him. He's made provision for our justification, having paid the debt of our sin in full by His suffering on the cross. He's conquered sin and death. We look to Him alone. We want to live as His sons in His Father's house. We want Him to transform us so that we will be holy and good like He is, not selfish and proud like the world. We are like Ephraim. Having come to the Lord, we say, what have I to do with idols anymore? We are now abiding under the shadow of the Almighty under this apple tree, and we have no interest in going to other trees. His fruit is sweet to our taste. His shadow is delightful to us. Here we will stay. We love it well. We are content. We are amazed at His goodness and grace toward us. But then, what happens? To our surprise, He comes to get us and brings us from the apple tree to His banqueting house. Verse 4 begins, He brought me into His banqueting house. Now here we've got another allegory, okay? The banqueting house. What is that? Well, literally, it is a house of wine, a place of the most lavish feasting and drinking. 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that Solomon had within his palace a most glorious dining room for feastings and competitions. I had to look that word up. What, what is a competition? Well, that's a, a, a drinking, a place of drinking. Okay, so feastings and competitions full of gold and such other furniture as so fine a room ought to have for the conveniency of the guests and where all the vessels were made of gold. No expense was spared for the pleasure of the guests in such a place. We've already seen how that they would bring precious ointments to, to perfume them when they came in, put garlands of flowers around them, how that they would have uh, lavish food. There would be musicians that were playing music in part of the house. It was a, it was a very grand sort of an affair. And indeed, it was, it was very different from the apple tree. You know, this was a place of, of abundance and, and excess. And even probably a great deal of sinful excess going on, you know, in that way. That, but what's being shown here? What's being shown here is that under the apple tree, we had such an abundance, and now he brings us to an even greater abundance. It's a picture of abundance. That's what's being shown here. The height and the depth and the length of the love of God that we did not initially comprehend we saw it but now we see it so much more it's beyond our wildest dreams to sit under the shadow of the king of kings and to partake of his fruits in the first place but this is not enough for him he has more he must do more because of who he is he himself brings us as it says here from the apple tree to the banqueting hall. We would have never dared to approach this great banqueting hall. Nor would we have ever been able to approach this great banqueting hall. But as it says, He brought me into His banqueting house. Something that only God could do, only God's Spirit could do to bring us further into our walk with Him. It was a decision and He is the one It was his decision, and he is the one who brought us in. Don't miss the allegory here. I mean, I've already been alluding to it. This is not about a literal house of wine. This is used to express the experience of Christ's abounding love. Christ is not an apple tree. Neither is he a banqueting house. This illustrates what is far better than an apple tree or a banqueting house. It is used to point to the fullness of His love toward us that is beyond our comprehension and even our what we could even dream up. As the bride goes on to describe her experience in this house in verse 4, she says, His banner over me was love. So that gives us an indication of what it's talking about. This was the ensign that He has put over her. It's like a flag that he has for his kingdom, for his great house. It's the colors under which we serve in his household as the bride of Christ, as the queen. His kingdom is about love. His love that abounds to the chief of sinners, which his bride is. His love that is proclaimed by the gospel, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And not only that, but 
Love is the way of his house that he established. It's the colors under which we operate. He transforms us by the renewing of his spirit, the spirit who sanctifies us so that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that we love our neighbors ourselves. We're entirely incapable of loving God like that in ourselves. We're entirely incapable of loving our neighbor and loving one another even as Christ has loved us. Think of it. This is what he does. He brings us from a state of hostility into the place of love. You see that there is indeed something far better than here. Depicted by a lavish house of feasting and drinking, it is just the figure, it is simply the figure of abundance of his love. George Burroughs says, so much better than thousands of gold and silver. Here is a feast of redeeming love. Better than feeding on fame, flattery, riches, power, which are nothing better than the husk of a dying prodigal. People that feed on the things of the world, they're dying. They're going to perish with all of those things. But those who feed in the banqueting house of Christ, they will live forever. So this, uh, not only does this illustrate the fullness of his love, but it also illustrates the increase of his love. This is something that we grow in further and further, deeper and deeper. He brings us from what? Glory to glory. That speaks of progress. We sang it a while ago, from strength to strength, where we have strength and then we're given more strength. Think how strong we will be in the end when we're with Christ. He brings us from grace to grace. He manifests His great love to us under the apple tree. Okay? We see His mercy and grace to us there. His saving work and provision, His acceptance, His generosity. But then He brings us into fuller and fuller comprehension and appreciation of how great that very love really is. It's not a different Um, way that the love is depicted, but it is an understanding on our part of that love whereby he is said to manifest that love to us. He he promises this. This is straight from his lips in, uh, in John 14, 21. We looked at it when we looked at the introduction to the Song of Solomon. He who has my commandments, Jesus says, and keeps them. Okay, what is he doing? He's under the apple tree. The one that Jesus has redeemed. So what is that person doing? They're they're following his way. His his way is in their heart. They're keeping his commandments. They're delighting in the uh, protection of Christ, the salvation of Christ, and delighting in the fruits that he gives them. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and what? Manifest myself to him. I will, he's already delighting under the shadow of the Almighty, but Jesus promises, I'm going to give you more. I'm going to manifest myself. I'm going to show you more of my love than what you have seen. Paul prays for this, doesn't he? He prays for it a lot. One of the places, one of my favorite places is in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. He says, for this reason... I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's praying for believers here. That you being rooted and grounded in love, okay, you're under the apple tree, you know his redemptive love, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. Something that you don't comprehend simply being under the apple tree. You've got something of it, you're rooted and grounded in it, but now he's bringing you into a greater appreciation what you have not yet seen. You see, he, he describes it, he goes on, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So you see that the things I'm talking to you about here from the Song of Solomon, these things are straight out. You find these things straight out in the New Testament. That there's a sense in which we're rooted and grounded. We're illustrated by the apple tree. And then we're brought into the place of abundant feasting that goes way far and beyond the sense of love that we have from the apple tree. So first thing that we see in our text, verse 4. Next, we see our response to the bride of Christ. I mean, as the bride of Christ, our response to Christ. It it is a most interesting response here. The more of Christ we receive, the more we want. In verse 5, we the bride describe ourselves as lovesick. Interesting words. That's exactly what the two words mean. There's one word that's translated love, everywhere. In other words, it's translated sick or affliction or that sort of thing everywhere. And these two words are put together. So what do you get? Love sick. But just what does that mean? Does it mean that we have become weak and faint as those that are transported with such, into such joy and ecstasy from receiving so much of his wonderful love? Like, are we, like we're drunk with that love? We're, is, we, we've had a fire hose of that love poured out to our, to, to our understanding, revealed, manifested to us? Or does it mean that we're missing his love and we're yearning for it as someone would be yearning for home who is said to be homesick? Similar kind of phrase, lovesick, homesick. It's something I, I want to have again or that, that I, I'm missing somehow. Well, to, to, to summarize the question, is, is she sick because of too much love or because she is yearning for love that she does not have. What does it mean to be lovesick here? Well, these two words, love and sick, they're only put together two times in the Bible, and both times are in the Song of Solomon. And the other time that besides here is in chapter 5, verse 8. And there it's quite clear that she's yearning for love that she does not have, from which she is deprived somehow. It's during the time in this song that when she is actually out searching for him because, with deep regret because she has refused his advances. She rebuffed him when he came to her. And so now she's desperate to find him. She asks the daughters of Jerusalem in desperation if they have seen her beloved. She doesn't know where he is. 
And she tells them that they should see him to please tell him that she is lovesick. So she uses these two words. She's yearning for the love that, that she does not have. But I would suggest in the passage we're looking at today that lovesick includes both of those meanings at the same time. On the one hand, she is sick because she's been brought into this place of abundance and she's overcome with all that she has received from this lavish house of feasting. But on the other hand, she's so delighted with what she's received that she wants more of it. It's a a beautiful picture that we're given here. The bride of Christ is here like a little child who says, do it again, Daddy. <laughs> you know, I remember that with some of our children. Like, if you're doing something like you're tickling them, and they're going, stop, stop, stop. And, and you're tickling them, you know, and then you stop, and they say, do it again, do it again. And then you go and you tickle them again. Stop, stop. You know, they can't take it anymore. And uh, that's the picture that we've got here. It's, it's, it's a beautiful picture. Surely the manifestation of God's love is like that. To his people. We see many of the saints in the Bible who are overcome so that they're faint and they're, they, they can hardly contain themselves before the presence of God. And then they say, Lord, do it again. <laughs> Lord, Lord, show me more of your glory. Remember Moses? I mean, we're told that in, in Hebrews that at Mount Sinai, when God reveal, revealed himself to them, that Moses was trembling and quaking. And then what did he do later? He says, show me your glory. He wanted more of it. He was overcome, and yet he wanted more. That's what we're talking about here. Show me your glory. That's the prayer of those who've seen glory. Show me more of your love. That's the prayer of those who have come to comprehend God's love. They've begun to see the height and depth and breadth and length. And so they want all the more now. That's how it works. They're overwhelmed with what they've seen, and yet they're crying out for more. Look at how she cries out for help to anyone who will hear her because of her lovesickness. She cries out that, uh, the way you do when you're desperate. You know, she's, she's here at this banquet, and the Hebrew shows that her request is, is plural. The, the New King James says that it is to the daughters of Jerusalem. And the thing, I think it's probably to everyone who can hear her husband, his companions, the daughters of Jerusalem, it's, it's to whoever will answer her. What does she say here? Okay, she's asking for medicine, for her love sickness. What kind of medicine does she need? Well, she says, verse 5, sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples. Those are the very things that made her sick. Remember, she's under the apple tree. She's eating his fruits. Those are the things that made her sick, and yet she wants them to make her well. Okay? The raisins and the apples are the manifestations of his love to her. James Durham says here, love can cure the same sickness that it makes, the same sickness that it creates. Indeed, isn't that the way it is with homesickness? I mean, what's, what's the problem? You know, you love home. You love home a lot. And so you're homesick because you miss home. What, what helps you going home? The very thing that made you sick, your love for home. So you go home where you love home. Only in this case, she's overwhelmed with so much love at the same time 
as she's looking for more love. Like, like the laughing child that I mentioned in the illustration. When it comes to knowing Christ, we want more capacity to experience his love. We have tasted and we have seen how good he is, but we're not content to stay there. We want more. We're content. We're, we're, we're pleased. We're delighted. But we want more because we've tasted. Look at the one who responds to her. Is it the daughters of Jerusalem? No. He responds to her. He, the bridegroom, is the one who comes when she cries out. Christ, our husband, sustains and refreshes us with his own embrace. Verse 6 shows how he takes her in his own embrace of love. She says, verse 6, His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. What a beautiful picture of support that is for one who is overcome and fainting. The hand behind the head and embracing with the other arm. This is a beautiful picture. Left hand under my head to sustain her. The raisin cakes to sustain her that she asked for. And the right hand embraces her. The apples that refresh her. She is sustained and she is refreshed in his embrace. He sustains us then with more of his love. Such language is used in the Bible of the embrace of friends as well as of the intimacy of a man and woman in marriage. As I mentioned before in the introduction, don't let this offend you. This is not suggesting that Christ is sexual with us. It is suggesting that the very best way to illustrate the intensity of the manifestation of his loving embrace is with the embrace of a husband for his wife when the wife dearly loves him. Just as calling him the Rose of Sharon does not mean that he is a flower, but that he is more beautiful than the best flowers in the way that he is beautiful, So describing his embrace as that of a man with his wife does not speak of him hugging us and embracing us that way, but of his divine love that is given to us and expressed to us in a way that is vastly superior to the thing that is used to represent it here. This love is something that God's Spirit alone reveals to us. What we read before in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. This is an experience beyond what eye has seen or ear heard. The things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now, it's not stagnant either. It's not like as soon as you're converted, you have all the revelation of His love you're ever going to get. No, you go from the apple tree to the banqueting house. This is him manifesting here the width and length and depth and height of his love that surpasses knowledge. This is what Christ has for his bride. He is a husband who knows how to make his wife very, very happy. Our marriages are often poor illustrations. But a little bit of advice here. Don't let that discourage you about the love of Christ, our bridegroom. Sometimes in our carnal, sinful way, we use the fact that, oh, well, I'm not married. 
or, oh, I have a bad marriage. So to me, marriage is not a good illustration because I have a bad marriage and because, oh, I'm not married anyway, or whatever. And that, that's no way to look at it. That's not at all the way to look at it. Yours may be bad. You may have no marriage at all. But your relationship with Christ is the one that you have forever. What we're supposed to do is look at marriages that illustrate it and say, okay, the very best of marriages, whatever they would be, whatever they would look like, that what he's talking about here is something that's far better than that. Describing our relationship with him. So if it's a good marriage, then yeah, that's helpful. But this is something that's way better than that. If it's a bad marriage, well, yeah, that's really hard. But it doesn't change the fact that you know what a good marriage is. Sometimes you know better by having a bad one what a good one is, sort of. You get the idea of what you would want. This is saying, this is about our relationship with Christ. If you're His true bride, you will never be ultimately disappointed as you may be in this world. All you have to do, all you, all you can do is look forward to greater and greater and greater and greater and greater and greater manifestations of His love. So, what do we, where do we go with this? Well, the last thing here is let all of those who make up the bride of Christ, you know what I mean by that? Remember we said the bride, you know, she's pictured um, at the end of the Bible in Revelation as a, a city coming down from heaven, adorned for her husband. She's huge. Like John has to go up on a mountain to see this, how, this bride. <laughs> she's, she's really, really big. She's a city coming down, adorned for her husband. And so the bride is many members, right, that, are, that make up the one bride of Jesus Christ. So all who make up the bride of Christ, let, let all who make up the bride of Christ settle for nothing short of the fullness of his love. Okay, that's the third thing I want to look at this morning from our text. In verse 7, the church admonishes her members with a solemn charge. Now, you have the church doing this, don't you? What what does the Bible say about the church? That she edifies herself in love. The different parts do their work to edify. So the church, mother church, you can say, who has all of her children within her. Okay, one bride, but she's complex. And she teaches them and admonishes them and encourages them and works in them. That's the way the church works. So here she is. What does she say? Song 2-7. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem. See, this isn't just the daughters that were the thorns before. This is now the daughters of Jerusalem, those that have an association with the city of God. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. So she's speaking to them to, until they all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a maturity and a perfection that God has for them. She charges these daughters of Jerusalem in a most solemn way here. The word charge suggests that. She calls the gazelles and the does of the field to bear witness against them the daughters of Jerusalem, if they don't listen to her. Later in the song, she'll speak of her beloved husband as a gazelle who runs to her, coming to her to manifest his love to her. Gazelles are known to mate during certain seasons, having their offspring during their rainy season particularly. They wait until that time when there will be plenty of um, water for their, for their offspring. Perhaps this is an appeal to their waiting for the time of love. That seems to be 
something of what is in view here. Whether that be the case or not, by charging the daughters of Jerusalem and calling witnesses, whatever those witnesses, I'm not sure what they are, whatever they are, Mother Church is emphasizing the importance of this admonition by charging with witnesses. Okay, remember Moses did that in the Old Testament when he called heaven and earth to bear witness, when he gave uh, charged God's people. And then what does Isaiah do? He picks up on the words of Moses in the very first chapter, and he says, heaven and earth bears witness to that you have not kept God's covenant. And he, he charges them based on heaven and earth as witnesses. So she's urging the disciples of Christ who make up his bride here to what? To not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, I think the translation until it pleases that we have in the New King James is to be preferred. Some translations have my love, don't awaken my love, as if she's either talking about herself or she's talking about him, which is what many would suggest might be the case here. The one that she loves. In other words, she's talking about him and saying, you know, don't, don't disturb him or don't disturb us. Like we're, we're, we're together here. Don't, don't anyone disturb us. But she never calls him my love. She calls him my beloved. But she, she doesn't use this phrase to designate him. And besides, the word my is not in the original. It's added in some translations. It's often in italics if they use italics to show that. But it's not in the original. It could grammatically possibly be added. But it's certainly not part of the... Um, what it, it is, there's no reason to force it here. It seems much better to understand this as a warning against trying to stir up the thing called love artificially. That seems to be what it's pointed to. It's certainly a huge problem in our day, okay? Whether, whether that, that interpretation I just gave you, it's one of those things, not certain about it, people are all over the place with it. But in any case, what I'm saying to you now is something that's true that will edify you, that's true in God's word. And that is this huge problem of stirring up love for God artificially. Love is a desirable thing, and people do that with love in the world, too. It's a desirable thing, and people want it. And it's presented in the movies and all that. You know, they say, oh, you know, I want to have a relationship. Like, I want to have that kind of love. And uh, if people haven't grown too cynical to where they think, oh, that's not, uh, it's not possible, then sometimes it makes them try to drum it up try to drum it up in an artificial way. Sometimes they run around to different partners trying to find it somewhere, that kind of thing. They end up with a plastic, superficial, shallow substitute for love that is far different from the genuine article. It's like a child's plastic ring that, uh, you know, the child is sure, the little child, look, my ring, it's gold, you know. It's got, you know, it's colored gold. And then the paint wears off, you know. It's not, <laughs> it's not the real deal. So there's a warning, a solemn warning here. It's the kind of love that you have in Hollywood. It lasts for a year or two at the best, sometimes only for a week or two. And there's a great deal of hype about it all. But it's like a painted plastic ring. It's got no substance to it. A lot of people actually ruin their marriages too by trying to drum up love instead of waiting for the real thing to grow and develop and mature. They want the excitement that's presented by pornography rather than love 
that is rich and seasoned and growing. This is speaking, of course, about doing that with our love for Christ, though. See, I'm illustrating with how people do it in the world. This is talking in Song of Solomon about our love for Christ and his love for us. The danger here is that the daughters of Jerusalem will see the love of the church for Christ and they'll want that love. Okay, these young disciples that are in the church, they say, oh, I want to have that love. Well, that's good. It's good that you're very good so far. But then rather than waiting patiently for the real thing to develop and grow, they'll look for quick tricks and quick fixes to try to get that love that they, they're craving. Many would-be disciples of Christ have crashed on that very rock because they were looking for something before God gave it to them. They come in looking for something quick and easy and then they leave frustrated and disappointed and say, I tried that. It didn't work for me. They did not have faith to do what? To believe the promises of God and to abide under the shadow of all, the Almighty and wait for eternity for that to grow. To let it grow and develop in this life with wisdom of patience. Patience and faith. The Bible says, wait on the Lord. It doesn't say receive everything from His hand the day you come to Him. Oh, you receive much from His It's a delight to be in, under the apple tree and under the shadow of His protection to have His fruits and they're sweet to your taste. But you don't have the fullness yet. There's a growth that needs to occur. They wanted to go straight to the banqueting house rather than sitting under the apple tree and enjoying His protection and His fruits there. There are many ways to drum up artificial love for Christ. I'll give you three here. First, idolatry. Remember the golden calf? Israel was so excited around the golden calf. They were more excited than they ever were, it seems, other times. They, they gave their gold to make the calf. They tore their earrings off and all, all their gold that they had. And then they tirelessly danced and sang and partied around that, around that golden calf. And what did they say about that calf? They said, you know, this is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. There's only one God that did that, only one Lord that did that. But the problem was they wanted him in a way that he did not give himself to them. They wanted to go to the banqueting house when he had not brought them to the banqueting house. They wanted to approach him in their own way instead of the way that he had instructed them to come. They made, in other words, their own banqueting house rather than coming having him bring them into his banqueting house. This is also what people do today in another way with idolatry when they make God to be what they want him to be. Okay, they might say that, oh, you know, I could not serve a God who would send people to hell. I don't think God is like that. I can't deal with it. I could never love a God that would send people to hell. Or maybe they would say, I can only love a God who thinks that that I am a very good person because I've been abused by other people and I need him to tell me what a good person I am and how wrong people are to say that I'm a sinner and that I'm bad or that I'm not worthy or, or all of those things. And so they, the true God that tells us that we're sinners who are unworthy of the least of his mercies offends them. 
They are distressed about a God like that. They feel that they could not love a God like that. What is the result? The result is they never get to know the love of the true God who loved his people and gave himself for them even though they were unworthy sinners. They do not know the one who is so pure and so holy that he cannot tolerate sin. The one who is revealed is a consuming fire to all of his adversaries and who we can only approach through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, I agree, it is harder to love a God like that. If you come to a God that says, hey, you're so wonderful, and oh, I tell you, you're just the most wonderful thing that ever came down the road, and I'm so excited about you, and and all that kind of thing, and and he says, oh, I would never never hurt anyone. I would never send anyone to hell or do anything like that. I'm not like that at all. You say, oh, what what? Oh, this is great. See, it's idolatry. It's superficial. It's a plastic ring. You never come to know the God who loves us so much that he's a holy God and in order to atone for our sin, had to himself become the sacrifice that was cut off and rejected for us. You don't know that God. You went around that. You went to the banqueting house. You didn't even get to the tree. You have a different, it's one of the other trees. It's not the tree that is him. Yes, it's harder to love a God like that at first. But he is the true God. And once we turn to him for salvation, our love will begin to grow and mature and become fuller and fuller as he manifests his great love to us. Such love as eye has not seen or ear heard. You know, I talked to someone one time who had been in a church that had that kind of a gospel. And they said when they came to a church where there was a biblical gospel, they found it really hard because they used to get excited at worship. And now it was hard because they're singing about God's judgment and things along with his love. But it was, a, it was a long process in working through that. But then the seeing who he really is, that's when we are transported to this height and depth and breadth of God's love. Second thing, sort of related, sensual worship is another artificial way to drum up love for Christ. This is where you use very stimulating music, pagan styles of tongue speaking where you're not really speaking real languages, but you just kind of get out of yourself and get all emotional and stuff. Uh, Drama, uh, light shows, multimedia presentations, sensory things. All that instead of the simple worship that God has called us to where we consider who he is. You see, you get caught up in the music, you get caught up even uh, like the pagan worship, they, they get drunk at worship. It stimulates them. The result is that you're carried away in your spirit, but you don't come to know the true God. You call it that, but it's not that, and it doesn't last. There's also the traditional approach where you do things in worship that God never called for, like hanging up pictures of the saints to adore or praying to their statues and images or burning incense, having guys with big robes waving incense burners around, and uh, you know all this uh, stuff that sensory stuff, chanting things, making up your own holy days like like Lent and Christmas that God never told us to celebrate. Take Christmas. I mean, I, I don't I don't mind if people want to get together with their families and they want to talk about the birth of Christ and all those things, 
But there's a lot of people that they know nothing of Christ. But oh, it's Christmas. And I feel so near to God. And I'm, I'm so touched at this time of year. It's just such a special time of year. It's the best time ever, you know, that sort of thing. That's not, there's nothing in that. It's, it's empty. It's a substitute for knowing the true and living God who sent His Son to redeem us. And then superficiality, yet another way to manufacture counterfeit love. You pretend to yourself or to others that you actually have this deep love and intimacy for Christ when it's really not yet developed. Hey, I'll tell you that I still have a long way to go in seeing the love of Christ. I feel like that only in the last few years, and I've told you this before, that I've really begun to get to know the love of Christ. For years, I was a soldier for him, but I had little sense of his love. In a way, I didn't even look for his love. I was out wanting to battle, wanting to conquer, wanting to win. When I preached through Ephesians a number of years ago, a few years ago, he started to bring me into his banqueting house a little. Started to see more. Some of those prayers, like I've mentioned with Paul, like praying that we get the depth and height and breadth and length of his love. It was around that time that I realized how much of my zeal for his kingdom was not really about him. It was more about me. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to outdo. I always wanted to outdo. And I became disgusted when I saw that that was what was so much a core in, my, in, in who I was. I became disgusted with my whining about the frustration that I had from the lack of progress of God's kingdom through the ministry. I considered myself being humble when I would say, oh Lord, you know, not, I'm not producing here. I'm not, I'm not accomplishing the work that you've given me to do. And I would pray and cry out to him and ask him to work and all that. But what I was really after was I wanted to be successful more than that I wanted to know God and his love. I was blind. It was a superficial substitute. But then God revealed the the, the vileness of that. Then when I went on a few years ago to preach through all the books of the Bible, and I saw how gracious and kind God was to his people in a way that I had not known. I knew the gospel. I was resting in the gospel. But I saw something of God dealing with his wayward people again and again, page after page after page in the whole Bible. It was something new. It was a revelation a manifestation of his love that here I was, you know, however many years, some 35 years down the road in my walk with Christ. And now, this, going through the Song of Solomon, I've come to delight in the love of Christ in ways that I never knew. You know, I, I'm the kind of person, I, I never, I didn't cry when my father died. I was nine years old, I didn't cry. My friends would always say, why don't you ever cry when you get hurt? I just didn't cry. I didn't know what it was to cry. But reading this book, sometimes it brings me to tears. That's, that's unusual for me. It's, it, God is bringing me into the banqueting house. But it's not something you can rush. And that's what I want to say to you. You grow in this. Some people will grow into it a lot faster, for sure, than me. But it's something that you wait for. What are we to do to avoid stirring up artificial love then? That's what we're being warned about here, right? How do we avoid the artificial stuff? 
We're to do what we saw last week. We're to come under Christ as our chosen apple tree. The one that we choose above all others. The ones that we say, here I stand. I want no other. What have I to do with idols anymore? Why am I going to look to fill my life with my, the things of this world when I have Christ? You see, the things of this lo- world become precious to me when I have Christ and I have them from Him. But when I have them as a substitute for Him, then I'm just cutting myself off from the riches of Christ and the beauty that is in Him. So I need to come under the shadow of His protection. I need to keep going there, not trusting in other things. And I need to eat of the fruits that He gives. To be diligent in reading the Word and praying and seeking Him. Enjoying those fruits, feasting on Him. Even when I'm dry, to to go forward with it. We're to abide in His Word and to pray that His Word will abide in us. Not to go after idols, but to have eyes for Him only. Dove's eyes. Remember the dove's eyes? They look only at the lover, not at everything else. We We are not to get up and go to the banqueting house. That's not how you go to the banqueting house. You don't say, oh, I'm going to go to the banqueting house. No. You go under the tree. The things that he's revealed to you, you rejoice in those things. And whenever he wishes, he is the one who brings you into the banqueting house. As you use the ordinary means of grace, as you use the Bible and prayer and seeking God in normal ways, he will bring you when he is pleased into the banquet. Don't try to stir it up if it's not coming from him because it won't be worth anything. Ours is to delight in what he has already given us and to abide in what we already have. He will come when the time is right to manifest more of his love to us by his spirit. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the love that you have bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. The love that you have bestowed on us that we should be called the bride of Christ. We are your sons now by marriage to him and we're his bride. And we praise you, O Lord, that even now that we are in a place of waiting. You know, really, we're betrothed to him at this point it seems, according to the Scripture. We're a betrothed virgin to Christ who is not running after all the, the things of the world. We're like, uh, like Ruth when she was in uh, Boaz's house and she didn't go after all the young men that were around, but she waited until, until Boaz came to, as a kinsman redeemer to have her as his bride. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would be like Ruth now that a chaste virgin and lord we know that even during this time of betrothal that you have promised that you will reveal more and more of your love to us as we abide under the shadow under your shadow and as we come to the fruits that you give to us as we partake of them father we pray that we would be diligent in doing so yes we yearn lord to see more and more of your love but we've already seen so much of it we have a wonderful revelation that has already been given to us and father we know that it's not really new revelation so much but the new 
manifestation to us of the things that you have already revealed, that we could see the height and depth and breadth and length of the love of Christ, and that we could rejoice in it as we've never rejoiced in it before. Oh Lord, this is not just that one time we're brought to the banqueting house, but this is something that you do again and again. This allegory here depicts something that goes on as we advance from strength to strength, from glory to glory, from one stage to another stage. Father, we thank you that the last stage is when we see him and we become like him because we see him as he is. What a marvelous day that will be. Father, we thank you that that is our anticipation, that there is a wedding coming, that there is the great marriage feast. Father, it is a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things that you have provided for your own, a feast of abundance that is beyond anything imaginable to us now. Oh, Father, help us, Lord, to to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the love of God and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Father, we desire this. We're tired of of, of groping around, Lord, and with, the, with the other trees that are in the world where Jesus Christ is the tree, the incarnate God who has come here. We have no use for those other trees. We pray, Lord, that we would learn that so that we could grow up in the maturity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We ask you these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, well, we come to that, uh, that special time in our service now when we are uh, able to, uh, to have the baptism of little LJ. You guys can stay there for a little bit. I'll say a few words and then, and then call you up. So um, Eric and Sarah have requested that we baptize their little son today. LJ was born on April 26th. And uh, we all rejoiced when we got that report. And Eric and Sarah, because you are members in good standing of the church that Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood, and he gives you the privilege to be able to present your children for baptism, and you have presented all the others, and now it is the time for LJ to be presented. Our Lord has graciously declared to you that his promise is to you and to your children. He says that all through the Bible. In the Old Testament, he gave his people a sign, circumcision given to the sons in particular, but also it would represent all the children to be God's children, a sign of his covenant. And he commanded that this sign then be given to them on the eighth day to show that they were set apart to God as his people. When Jesus came, he gave us baptism as the sign of the covenant declaring to us the same thing that was said regarding circumcision. This is the sign to you that I am God to you and to your children after you. At baptism, they were told that the promise is to you and to your children. Remember at Pentecost. But how can our children have God as their God when they're sinners just like we are? We have to believe, don't we, on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. He died on the cross to atone for, our, for the sins of his people. But if we don't come to him, we cannot be pardoned. 
There is no other way for us to wash away our guilt than by coming to Jesus Christ. What's more, we need God's Spirit to renew our hearts, else we will never come to Jesus for salvation. Our little children cannot understand these things, but our gracious Lord has promised to bless them with us if we believe. He has called us to look to Him for their cleansing. With baptism, we acknowledge that our children are dirty and that they need to be washed. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to confess that. Um, that they need to have their sinful hearts renewed. And that they need to be pardoned by the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. With baptism, God promises to give them this twofold cleansing. And He receives them into His kingdom. For He has declared that of such is the kingdom of heaven. And has declared that as the children of, the le- of at least one believer... If, if they are the children of at least one believer, then the children are not unclean, but holy. They are sanctified. Nothing but washing by the blood of Jesus and by His Holy Spirit can cleanse them. And baptism is the outward sign that represents that. With it, we see pictorially God's cleansing of them. And in giving the sign, we look to God to actually do the cleansing that is represented by the sign. Like we saw in the, with the things in the Song of Solomon, there's something greater here than the sign, of course. It's not that the child is dirty and needs to have their skin washed. No, the child is sinfully defiled and polluted, and baptism represents that cleansing that God promises, lest we perish in our sins. It's a sign upon them to point them and us to the work of Christ concerning them. This being so, then we have the privilege of telling our children as they grow up that this is what Jesus has done for his people, that we are his people and that this is what he has done for us, that he went to the cross for us, that he died on the cross and that he calls us to come and to trust in him and to rest in him all the days of our life for his salvation. We teach them from the beginning to give thanks and to trust in him for his saving work toward his people all the days of their lives. And we look to the Spirit to so work in them that they will always trust in Him and that they will always respond to His Word. When they sin, we point them to what Jesus has done for our forgiveness on the cross. And we teach them to repent and to look to Him for forgiveness and mercy. And we teach them to look to the Holy Spirit to help them to understand and to believe His promises, to know His love and to walk in His ways. We teach them that this is the privilege that we have and that they have as those who are baptized. What a Savior Jesus is and what rich blessings He has for us and our children. Eric and Sarah, He loves little LJ and He will help you to teach Him and to be godly examples for Him. And He will help you other children in the family too to be a godly example to your little brother. He will do this by his grace, and he will help his church, his people, to do this as well. So now I would like to ask that Eric and Sarah would come forward with little LJ and uh, so that we may baptize him. We'll look to Jesus for the cleansing of his promise, and I'll ask Elder uh, Ray Silver to also come up at this time.
come over here. Ray, you can go on the other side of the point. All right, so Eric and Sarah is... LJ is regarded as a member of Christ's kingdom only because you are members of Christ's people, his kingdom, and he is your child because the promise is to you and to your children, to you who keep his covenant. Then I will ask you to affirm these vows before the Lord and before his people as witnesses. So Eric and Sarah, do you renew the vows that you made when you confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and entered into the full communion of the church? Do you acknowledge that your son is a sinner in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises in his behalf? And do you look in faith to our Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? Do you now covenant and promise in humble reliance on the grace of God to bring up your son to love God and to serve him to the end that he may come to commit his life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I do. Amen. Isn't it wonderful that we can even think about such a thing? That God in his mercy has extended his promises to us. And now I have something for the congregation. You who are members of the congregation... This little fellow is your brother in the Lord and you have obligations to him and to this family. Do you, the members of this congregation, in the name of the Church of Christ, undertake with these parents the covenant responsibility for the Christian nurture of this child? Amen. Let's pray before we baptize. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you for for little Leandre, we pray, O oh Lord, that, that you would bless him, Lord, as we prepare now to apply the sign of the covenant to him. Father, this is the everlasting covenant that you made with your people when you promised that you would be a God to us and to our children. When you said, O oh Lord, that you would set us apart from the nations, that you would set us apart to belong to you. Father, we thank you that We are lilies among the thorns that you have sanctified, that you have chosen, that you have washed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray, Lord, because we know that our little children, that that they come from us as defiled. They come from us polluted by sin. Father, they come as the root of Adam who rebelled against you. And Father, we see that root. We see that root in all of us. But Father, we come because of your covenant mercy, where you promise redemption, where you promise forgiveness. And Father, without that, there's no hope for LJ. There's no hope for anyone else. But Father, in that hope, we pray that this little fellow that will be nurtured among the people of God, that will be brought up by his parents, Lord willing, that his parents will will teach him and train him in the ways of the Lord. They've promised to do so. And we pray, Lord, that you would give them the grace to do that. And we pray, Lord, that 
by the working of your spirit. We look for the spirit to wash this little fellow, not the water, but the spirit represented by the water. And we pray, Lord, that from his earliest days, that he would have a heart that responds to you and that delights in your promises, that delights in the law of God from the inside, that chooses your way and that wants to serve you and please you. We pray for for all of his siblings, his brothers and sisters too. We ask that you would help them, O Lord, that they would be examples to him, that they would teach him also in the way of the Lord. Thank you for what you have done for us. O Lord, bless this child with what this sign signifies. For we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Leandre Joseph Poulin, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'll ask Elder Ray to give thanks. Now let's prepare to come to the Lord's Supper.
Our Lord has such a wise and wonderful way of working in our lives. When he first saves a sinner, he manifests his grace and mercy to us in a way that truly encourages us. We see that we are sinners who deserve to be punished. Christ tells us that he has shed his blood to atone for sins, and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's marvelous to come to him with understanding of the gospel and to see his great love for us. But he does not bring us to perfection or even to maturity right away. The Bible talks often about being brought to maturity and growth. He works in us in such a way that he gradually reveals more and more of his love to us. We are always to reach for more while also finding great satisfaction in what we have already received. There is growth in grace. There is maturity in the faith. There is progress in coming to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God in growing in love. In seeking maturity, it is necessary for us to turn from our idols and to look only to Christ for protection and for spiritual nourishment, like we saw in the sermon. When we do then he will manifest his love to us. He will bring us from the apple tree to the banqueting house. He will bring us to the fullness of more and better things. But we are not to rush the process. We cannot rush it. He is the one who must bring you into the banqueting house in his time. If you continue to sit in his shade and to eat his apples, to continue looking to him for salvation and growth and grace, waiting upon him, One of the ways we do that is by partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is where we feed and we look to him to nourish us and grow us up in our faith. Here he sets before us what he has done to redeem us. Here at this table, his body broken, his blood shed is presented to us. We look to him who is crucified, not only that initially that we look to him for our redemption, but we look to him now for our growth. Here he feeds us with faith in what he has done. It keeps us, this table keeps us in remembrance of what he has done. That our salvation is dependent upon Christ crucified. That we are unacceptable apart from him. It renews our gratitude and it nourishes us for fuller obedience. And sometimes at this table, he is pleased to reveal the fullness of his love to us in a richer, fuller way than we have seen it before. Sometimes we come and it's not so. Sometimes it's more of a time where we're simply faithfully remembering and looking to him and calling on his name. But there are other times when we're particularly encouraged and we see something of his love that that is richer and fuller than we had seen before. Here is what he says to us about this table. 1 Corinthians 11 from his apostle For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Are you among those then who are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation and looking to grow in him? If you're a communicant member in good standing of a faithful church and you are trusting and resting in Jesus Christ, then you are welcome to come and partake of this table. If not, then you should not partake. Come rejoicing in him as your Lord and Savior who does all for you and look to him to reveal more and more of his love to you as you wait upon the Lord. Of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. We have a complete salvation, but it is a growing salvation that is progressive as we are sanctified. We're fully justified, but we grow in our love for him and our maturity in that love is in our walk with him, our obedience to him as he gives us advance from strength to strength. So let's ask him then to meet us here and to bless us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this table that you have set before us, that your Son has actually set before us, that he has appointed, whereby the bread represents his body and the wine, his blood that was shed 2,000 years ago. It is here that he is depicted to us as crucified. It is here that we are presented as those who receive the blessing of that sacrifice. Father, we, look, we have looked to Christ, if we are those who are uh, communicant members, we have looked to Christ as those who are trusting in him for our salvation. We have come, Lord, with great joy to receive the forgiveness of sins and the new life that is promised by him, the hope of eternal life. And we pray, O oh Lord, that, that now as we come, we also come looking to you to give us progress in our faith to cause us to grow in our love for you and our sense of your love for us, that we might understand more fully the height and depth and breadth and length and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. Father, that what eye has not seen and what ear has not heard, that your spirit, Lord, would continually manifest and reveal to us. For you told us that if we love you and keep your commandments, that you and the Father will come to us and that you will manifest yourself to us and that you will do this by giving the Holy Spirit to us. So Lord, we look to you to visit us here as we are gathered at this table. We pray, Father, that we would feed upon Christ our Savior, that we would go away from here with a greater sense of his love and of what he has done for us. Oh Lord, continually bring us from the apple tree to the banqueting house. And we pray, Lord, for those who may not even be under the apple tree. Father, that you would work in them, that they might be granted repentance and that they might be granted faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might come to rest fully in him and not to trust in idols. We pray, O Father, for your mercy and grace that you would extend it. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory and praise. Amen. Right now receive the blessing of the Lord our God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.